Robin, thank you very much. It is a pleasure to be here. Um, I've been looking forward to this for some time. And uh, this morning I'd like to talk to you about pancreatic transplantation. And um, so just as a little overview, I'll talk about the purpose of transplantation, of pancreas transplantation, the scope of the problem, the indications, technical considerations in terms of the surgery itself. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about the various options of a simultaneous pancreas kidney transplant versus pancreas after a kidney transplant versus a pancreas transplant alone. We'll talk about the outcomes. We'll talk about sort of the local uh, need and impact. Then I'll give you results from our own program and talk about our own program here a little bit, and then we'll just summarize things. So, obviously, <clears throat> the purpose of beta cell replacement therapy is, you know, this is nothing that should be a surprise to anyone in this audience, but is to improve the quality of life by establishing an insulin-independent normal glycemic state and to prevent or ameliorate, ameliorate the secondary complications of diabetes. And as you know, there are really two options for beta cell replacement. One is whole organ pancreas transplantation, and the other is islet transplantation. And I'm not going to talk this morning about islet transplantation. Um, it's a field in and of itself. Uh, and the main reason is that I'm not going to talk about it is, is because its clinical applicability is very limited at this point uh, for a large part because it's not covered by insurance. Um, so the fact is that people can't get islet transplant unless they're enrolled in some sort of study, and there are very few of these studies left anymore. Now, again, something that should not be a surprise to anyone in this audience, you know, there are about 21 million people in the United States with diabetes. Uh, many of them are undiagnosed, and there are about 1.5 million new cases per year in adults. It's now the leading cause of end-stage renal disease and the sixth leading cause of death, and this is really likely to be underreported. And in 2002, so a decade ago, the total direct and indirect costs associated with diabetes are over $132 billion, so it's probably twice that now, I, I would suspect. Um, now, in terms of the prevalence of type 1 diabetes, there are about a million and a half people in the U.S. with type 1 diabetes, and um, over 170,000 uh, of those are less than 20 years of age. Now, you contrast that with the number of people who are actually listed for simultaneous kidney-pancreas transplant, it's only about 2,000, and those that are listed for either a pancreas transplant alone or a pancreas after a kidney, again, it's only about 1,600. So they're, they're, um, it's, it's such, tra pancreas transplant represents such a small fraction of the therapeutic options for diabetes in terms of number of patients served. Um, now, the other thing that's interesting is you know, the number of deceased donors, for deceased organ donors, 
basically peaked in 2007 and has been pretty static since then. And there are only about 8,000 deceased donors a year. Um, there were only, when pancreas transplant kind of peaked in the mid-2000s, mid, uh, uh, there are only about 800 pancreas transplants performed and only about uh, simultaneous kidney pancreas transplants and about a little over 400 uh, pancreas alone or pancreas after kidney transplants. So it's a drop in the bucket. So there are about 100,000 new cases of type 1 diabetes every year. Um, and again, less than 1,500 now undergo pancreatic transplantation. And given the number of sorry, given the number of donors available, if we're going to use whole organ transplantation, or if we're going to use human aloe islet, and not you know some sort of stem cell derived or xeno derived islets, we're never going to come anywhere close to meeting the need, even if this were ideal therapy. But for select populations. This is really a great therapy, and I hope you'll come away with the same conclusion this, this morning. Now, no surprise to anyone, the incidence of diabetes is on the rise, and with that, the incidence of end-stage renal disease secondary to diabetes is on the rise. So from, 2000, from 1992 to 2002, the diabetes became the leading cause of end-stage renal disease. And we can see that now the um, diabetes, diabetics encompass about half of the renal transplant waiting list. Now, so of those 50%, and there are roughly 90,000 people in the United States waiting for kidney transplants. So of those, say, 45,000 people who are diabetics and waiting for kidney transplants, who might be candidates for pancreatic transplant? Or what are the indications? So number one, a type 1 diabetics with renal failure. And again, the two options we have for these people are either pancreas after a kidney transplant, and most of these people wind up getting live donor kidney transplants. And I'll show you the advantage of that in a little while. Or alternatively, simultaneous kidney pancreas transplants, where they get both the kidney and the pancreas from the same deceased donor. And there are advantages to that. Uh, second is type 1 diabetics without renal failure or a pancreas transplant alone. And this is indicated for people who are extremely brittle that you can't control. Now, Robin tells me everyone can be controlled if they check their sugars enough and, and uh, you know, meticulous enough and well taught. Um, unfortunately, not everyone gets like that and they become brittle. But certainly for those patients that have hypoglycemic unawareness, which could be a true life-threatening condition. And again, I understand where many of you are coming from where hyperglycemic unawareness shouldn't occur if someone is well controlled. I'll contend that, that not everyone is able to control themselves and that hypoglycemic unawareness does exist. But I understand that from the standpoint of excellent diabetologists, 
who take really good care of their patients and you can treat this as well in, in most patients. Um, and then those patients that have progressive secondary complications despite what appears to be an optimal insulin regimen. Uh, now, type 2 diabetics can also benefit from pancreatic transplantation and some of these patients are what we would call the phenotypic type 1 and these may be some of the other subgroups like the maturity onset diabetics of the young um, but basically these are patients who are thin, have an early onset but do have a persistent C-peptide and some of these type 2 diabetics as you're probably familiar with may ultimately have decreased insulin production over the long term. Now, the first pancreas transplant was reported in 1967 by uh, Kelly and Lilahai at the University of Minnesota. And the University of Minnesota has really been the leader in pancreatic transplantation. David Sutherland, who uh, ran the, both the pancreatic transplant program and the whole division of transplantation, at the University of Minnesota, really the father of pancreatic transplantation, and really is probably the single person who made it a reality. But you can see that with the first pancreas transplant, it was a segmental pancreas transplant, um, and they did this sort of cockamamie uh, vascular anastomosis with a graft and, and ligation of the vessel and all that. To, um, and it's Oh, this technique is only of historical significance. Um, pancreas transplantation really took off in the 1990s in the United States, and that was largely due to improvements in outcomes across the board. It's actually, again, it actually peaked in the, the mid part of the last decade and has declined somewhat uh, in terms of numbers. Um, not surprisingly, the vast majority of pancreas transplants have been performed in the United States and lesser degrees in Europe, South America, Asia, um, so Australia. So it's largely an American and a European uh, modality. And now you can see more recently uh, the breakdown in terms of pancreas transplants. Again, the vast majority are simultaneous kidney pancreas transplants, and then uh, the, the second most common type is pancreas transplant alone. But the numbers have been declining for a variety of reasons. Um, when we look at how many pancreas transplants are performed in any given locality, um, there are very few, sorry, there are very few localities that perform a lot of pancreas transplants. This is broken down by donor service areas. There are 58 federally designated donor service areas in the country. Our donor service area is basically downstate New York, a few upstate counties, and I think one county in Pennsylvania that serves about 13 million people. Um, but anyway, you can see the vast majority of donor service areas for the, all the transplant programs in that donor service area do uh, less than, than uh, 20 pancreas transplants a year. Um, so it's really pretty, it's an underutilized modality. 
there are a number of patients now out there on the order of thousands who are running around with pancreas transplants, with successful pancreas transplants. Um, now, in terms of the number of transplants performed, you could see initially uh, it was basically all simultaneous kidney pancreas transplants uh, versus uh, later on as the results improved, both due to immunosuppression, better immunosuppression, better surgical techniques, um, better monitoring for rejection, more and more patients have gotten pancreas transplants alone, but it's still a minority. The biggest problem is, is that the pancreas is a very difficult organ to monitor for rejection. And where if you get a kidney and a pancreas simultaneously from the same deceased donor, they will all, the two organs will almost always reject synchronously. So it's very easy to monitor the kidney for rejection. You know, you follow creatinine. If the creatinine bumps up, you biopsy it, and you know if there's a rejection. Pancreas is not any really good marker. We use amylase, we use lipase, but it's not as sensitive or as specific um, as as serum creatinine in the kidney. So the pancreas transplants alone are more difficult to monitor. They have a higher, they've had a higher incidence of, um, of uh, immunologic graft loss, as I'll show you in a minute. Um, again, the breakdown uh, in terms of type 1 versus type 2, the vast majority, again, better than 90%, of pancreas transplants are performed on type 1 diabetics. Uh, and you can see, although the numbers increased somewhat in the last decade, um, it's still been relatively low for type 2 diabetics. Now, <clears throat> the, um, the surgical technique and, and early management, again, uh, this needs to be tailored to the category of pancreas transplant and again, it's not so much that the, the, the simultaneous kidney-pancreas transplant is of low immunologic risk. It's of low immunologic risk because you can pick up rejection earlier. It's not that it's really any less immunogenic. Um, and certainly the most difficult pancreases to monitor are those where the patients don't have end-stage renal disease or don't have renal failure, and they've received the pancreas transplant alone. Now, there are technical considerations, and I think some of the biggest advances have been in the technical advances in pancreas transplantation. So, there's an issue with the arterial blood supply. In its native position, the arteries to the pancreas aren't end arteries. They form all sorts of anastomoses with the other viscera. And, um, but when you do a pancreas transplant, because you've removed them and you've disconnected these anastomotic blood supplies, you've converted uh, what weren't end arteries into end arteries. And any increase in, in vascular resistance, either due to edema, rejection, pancreatitis, uh, increases the propensity for thrombosis. So pancreas transplants have a much higher thrombotic uh, complication rate 
than any other pan than any other type of solid organ transplant. Um, the venous drainage is also a bit more complicated because obviously in its native position, the pancreas venous drainage goes into the portal system and into the liver. But in the for technical reasons, it tends to be a bit easier to hook the the pancreas's venous effluent to the systemic system. And I'll show you the differences in that. And then thirdly, the third uh, issue tech, from a technical standpoint is what to do with the exocrine secretions of pancreatic transplant of pancreatic transplants. So your two choices are either bladder drainage, and the advantage of bladder drainage is, is that you could measure urinary amylase levels because the pancreatic exocrine secretions are going into the urine and you could actually measure the, the urinary amylase and if you see a drop in the urinary amylase, it's indicative of allograft dysfunction. It's probably the most sensitive marker uh, that we currently have in terms of monitoring for rejection. But bladder drainage is fraught with all sorts of other problems versus enteric drainage where you don't have access to the exocrine secretions, but the patients really do much better. So. Uh, this is a picture, this is a Rubens painting of Achilles. Um, so there are, the, there are actually two Achilles heels of pancreas transplant. As many of you know, um, Achilles was the, the product of a mortal uh, father and his mother was a sea nymph and hence was immortal. And in her attempt to uh, make him Im immortal, she dripped dipped him in the river Styx, uh, thus protecting everything but the heel where she held him. And in the Trojan Wars, um, I think it was Apollo, uh, Apollo uh, guided a spear that, that uh, Paris threw, or Hector, one of the Trojans, uh, to hit him in the heel and he died. Uh, so anyway, this is... <laughs> You didn't think you'd get a uh, Greek mythology lesson today, did you? Um, this is a pancreatic allograft. You can see it comes with the, du the duodenal C-loop. And the pancreatic blood supply is based on the splenic artery and off the, inferior, off the superior and inferior uh, uh, pancreatic or duodenal arteries which are branches off the superior mesenteric artery. So rather than have to do two uh, arterial anastomoses in the recipient, what we do is we take the donor uh, common internal and external iliac arteries as a Y-graft and anastomose them. The internal iliac artery goes to the splenic, the external iliac artery goes to the SMA, and we do that on the back table, and then we only have one arterial anastomosis that we have to do in the recipient, and then the portal vein for the venous effluent. Um, when I was, before I was here at Columbia, I was in Philadelphia, and I worked with uh, Don Defoe, who's a very well-known pancreatic transplant surgeon. Parenthetically, he is the brother of the actor Willem Dafoe. Um, and anyway, we wrote this paper where 
for, for very unusual circumstances, Don had two uh, kidneys from the same donor that no one else was going to use. And he said, gee, wouldn't it be interesting if we could turn the anastomotic, restore the anastomotic blood flow to the pancreas? So he hooked the kidney, one of the kidneys up, figuring if it didn't work out, the patient still had the other kidney, uh, which was transplanted in the standard fashion. But he hooked the renal artery and renal vein up to the splenic artery and splenic vein. And then we cross-clamped the splenic artery and splenic vein uh, to see its impact on the pancreatic blood flow. And basically what having that anastomotic blood supply does is it increases blood flow by about a third, um, as you can see here. And we wrote this, this paper up um, as just as a proof of concept. So again, decreasing that anastomotic blood flow uh, or removing that anastomotic blood flow decreases blood flow for the pan to the pancreas and making it more prone to thrombosis. You just anastomose the distal end together to figure out where the kidney is. Can you just tie the vein and artery together? Yeah, usually we, we staple off the, the distal vessel. You don't connect them to improve blood flow? No, that's been tried and wound up in steel syndrome. And so, hence, that didn't work either. What's the normal portal vein flow? The normal portal vein flow is probably about a liter and a half, two liters a minute, something like that, would you say, Anthony? Yep. Yeah. So, it's a lot, um, but not nearly as much in the pancreas transplant. Now, in terms of dealing with the exocrine secretions, again, it's either bladder drainage, or enteric drainage. So the advantage of the bladder drainage, again, is to monitor urinary amylase for rejection. And if you have anastomotic leaks, they're easier to control because you put a Foley catheter in, you put a drain into the, into the area, the fluid collection that's leaking, and it's, it's a little bit safer to control. Um, in terms of the enteric anastomosis, there are less metabolic complications. So, when you have a bladder-drained pancreas transplant, first of all, the pancreas is putting out about two liters of exocrine secretions uh, and very high bicarb load. So these patients often need to be on like two and a half grams of bicarb four times a day um, just to keep them from getting uh, too acidotic. Um, so the management is also easier and there's reduced length of stay and morbidity. There are other complications associated with bladder drainage, like reflux pancreatitis. And the common story is, patient has a bladder-drained pancreas, and they come into the emergency room with lower abdominal pain, and you say, what happened? They say, oh, I don't know, I was riding in my car, and I went over a bump, and I had this terrible pain in my lower abdomen. And what happens is, is that, you know, they sort of valsalva with a full bladder and it refluxes back up the pancreatic duct and causes a pancreatitis. So they also, um, you know, could get a chemical cystitis or urethritis from the, from the exocrine secretions. They get dehydrated, they get acidotic. Um, the disadvantages of the enteric drainage are that it's difficult to monitor for rejection and leaks are extremely problematic, you know, the almost life-threatening uh, complications. Uh, 
and we'll see later that in our program we've had no leaks. We do purely enteric drainage on uh, all our pancreas transplants. Now, so this is um, the original way that the exocrine secretions were dealt with. So here's a pancreas transplant, and you can notice it's facing in the head down position. Um, and a loop of distal ilium is usually brought down to the pancreas. And here you can see, again, the head down position, um, anastomose to the bladder. And when you have bladder drainage, um, about 15 or 20% of the time you need to convert them to enteric drainage. And it looks really nice here in these pictures, but in reality, particularly if you have people with thin, narrow pelvises, they never lay quite right, and it's tough to get the bowel down there to lay comfortably and all. So I think from a technical standpoint, it's much more difficult to do the pancreas transplant in the head down position. Um, now, the reason most centers now have converted to enteric drainage, and I'll show you in just a minute what it looks like, the way we do it now with the head up position. So you can see the, um, the technical failure rates have decreased dramatically, and they're roughly comparable now between enteric and bladder drainage. So this is the way we do the pancreas transplants now. You can see it's in the head-up position. The duodenal C loop is anastomose to the proximal jejunum. Um, the, the portal vein is anastomose to the, the inferior vena cava, and the Y-graft is anastomosed to the right common iliac artery. And this is how we do all our pancreas transplants here. Um, and again, this just shows that the, you know, the vast majority of centers in the United States now are using enteric drainage for practically all their pancreas transplants. Now here's one in real life. Um, so you can see here's the pancreas, here's the, the duodenal C-loop, here's our Y-graft, the SMA, the splenic, here's our portal vein, uh, here we are preparing this, the, the, uh, here's the vena cava, here's the, the iliac, common iliac artery, and here we are. We have the vena cava clamped with a Satinsky clamp, and we're doing the we're about to start the venous anastomosis. You can see here we are doing the portal portal vein to vena cava. Um, I'll talk about that in, in just a minute. We can. Uh, there are some technical issues with that. So here's the completed venous anastomosis. And there, here we have the enteric anastomosis. This is what it looks like on imaging studies. They're really hard to see on imaging studies. Uh, and it's one of the problems with pancreatic transplants. If you get a radiologist who doesn't know what they're looking at, and they'll say there's a fluid collection there, and they'll want to stick a needle into it. So, you know, we have to protect them sometimes from the best intentions of the radiologists. Um, 
So in answer to your question, John, you can do the pancreas transplant to the portal system. We don't do it to the portal vein, but we do it to the superior mesenteric vein. Um, and there are theoretical advantages because, you know, you don't have the high insulin levels in the systemic circulation. And obviously, you know, insulin is supposed to be trophic for the liver and all that. There's never been shown to be any significant difference in outcomes between the portal drain and the systemic drain. The difficulty with putting it to the portal system is, is that the Y graft has to be, has to go through the small bowel mesentery. And it looks good when they're laying supine, but sometimes when the patient stands up, the whole thing shifts and winds up kinking that Y graft. So it's a little bit more difficult from a technical standpoint to get it right. Um, and so you can see there was an interest in the portal drainage, which kind of waned. And about 20% of centers and 20% do about, you know, do that pancreas transplant with portal uh, drainage. Um, so when you look at the portal versus the systemic venous drainage, again, in all sorts of different parameters, when you look at rejection-free, graft survival, um, graft survival, kidney graft survival, and patient survival, there's no significant difference when you whether you drain it portally or systemically. Is death sensor? Um, the death sensor is. Are you there? Patients survival. The patients, yeah. I mean, so, and then when you look at A1Cs, again, there's no difference over time. What about insulin levels? Insulin levels are higher in the systemic drain. By how much? Um, you know, they vary. So there's no one that's really, you know, they vary with meals. They vary. So there's no one that's really looked at it that close. It is something that we can do. Um, Lauren Golden has a grant to look at uh, metabolic control in the pancreas transplant patients. And um, so she's doing mixed meal tolerance tests on them. So we'll also have, we'll have an opportunity to look at this. Right now, I wanted it, while we're, the program is still in its nascent phase, we've been doing all systemic drainage, but at some point we'll, con we'll convert so we can do some of each and, and answer these questions. Let's talk about the outcomes a little bit more. So, now, when patients are waiting for either a kidney and a pancreas or a pancreas alone, the biggest impact on their survival is the kidney transplant itself, okay? So those who have good renal function fare better on the waiting list than those who also need a kidney. Uh, patient survival, though, uh, after transplant tends to be uniformly pretty good. And again, these are highly selected patients who get the pancreas transplant. Um, when you look at the impact, uh, and this is risk of death, of those who are waiting, 
Obviously, as with any type of transplant, the relative risk of death increases in the perioperative period, but then normalizes, and actually there's a, a significant improvement in life expectancy um, or in survival uh, at various time points, depending on the modality. So for a, um, a simultaneous kidney pancreas, that's, I guess, around uh, 75 days, and then there's a survival advantage. Pancreas after kidney, again, it's about 120 to 100 days or so, and then for pancreas transplant alone, it's a little bit longer. Uh, but all of them result in survival advantages based on this UNOS registry data. Um, when we look at five-year patient survival, it's improved significantly over time over the last couple of decades. Um, when we look at patient survival for type 1 diabetics based on whether they receive a, uh, whether they're just on dialysis versus getting a deceased donor kidney transplant versus getting a live donor kidney transplant versus getting a simultaneous kidney pancreas transplant. So. Um, Did you go back just a second? Sure. Shocking. I mean, although we do know the status, how terribly they do on dialysis. Uh, it's awful how badly they do on dialysis. So it's probably five-year mortality of over 50%, you know, which is worse than obviously many forms of cancer. Uh, now, um, this basically looks at what happens if the pancreas fails, what happens if the kidney fails, and you have a function pancreas, et cetera, et cetera. So again, the best outcomes if, if someone has a function kidney transplant in these, in these patients with end-stage renal disease. Um, I don't know why this, is, this graph got screwed up a little bit. But um, anyway, so if you have a functioning kidney, better. If you have function, well, best is if you have a functioning kidney and pancreas. Best, next best if the kidney functions but the pancreas fails. Next best if the if the kidney fails and the pancreas is functioning. And the worst is if they both fail. Uh, not a big surprise. Um, this is not in diabetic patients. This is overall, but the just to point out that the length of time that patients are on dialysis affect their post-transplant outcomes. Yeah? So, in keeping with this, can you talk a little bit about sort of the preemptive, when you do a preemptive transplant in patient-designated dialysis, exactly what those patients have? Yeah, I'll get to that in just a minute, okay? That's a good question. So, um, so the, the point of this graph is basically to show that over the the 1990s, the results of pancreas transplant after kidney transplant equaled that of simultaneous kidney pancreas transplant. So there were significant improvements. And so now I think pancreas transplant after kidney transplant is as good or a better therapeutic option 
than a simultaneous kidney pancreas transplant. And that speaks to, to uh, Dr. Goldman's point um, about, uh, about getting patients the kidney transplant preemptively, and more often than that, that's going to be with a live donor than with a deceased donor. But I'll show you some more data about that. Um, this basically just shows that there have been small incremental changes in outcomes over several decades. And this shows, that was for SPK, and this is for, for PAKs. <coughs> Significantly get, getting much better. And again, we have lots of patients now that are living with all sorts of pancreas transplants nationwide. Now, in terms of the unadjusted one, three, and five-year and ten-year uh, pancreas patient survival by transplant type, you can see they're now pretty comparable. In terms of graft survival, again, when you get out to the ten-year, these are older cohorts, but there is a, still a, an advantage over the long term to get a simultaneous pancreas kidney transplant. Again, that issue of being able to monitor for immunologic events. Um, so when we look at immunologic graft losses, you could see that it's significantly less for the, for the simultaneous kidney pancreas transplants, although there have been big improvements in the pancreas transplant alone and the pancreas after kidney transplants. And here we have the five-year immunologic graft loss. For so that's beyond, that's pancreas that survive 30 days? Or? Yeah, yeah. So immunologic graft losses, so they've, they've made it past the risk of thrombosis. So obviously a lot of that, those, those changes, those improvements have been results, resulting in changes in, in immunosuppression. Now, the majority of patients receiving pancreas transplant have immunosuppression based on uh, tacrolimus and either mycophenolic mofetil or mycophenolic acid. Um, and that's, for most places, the regimen of choice. Most centers are also using some form of anti-T-cell induction therapy. We use a seven-day course of hemoglobulin here. Um, now, we we're, we're also have improved monitoring for rejection, and this is what we do now. So again, if you remember, the pancreas is hooked up to the proximal jejunum, and usually it's somewhere between... 25 and 50 centimeters distal to the ligament of trites. And so the gastroenterologist now, using small flexible enteroscopes, can actually get into the, into the duodenum, the, the allograph duodenum. And in fact, what our gastroenterologists have tell, told us, that they even just, you know, visually inspecting, that seems to correlate very well with you know, the degree of inflammation and with whether or not rejection is present. Um, so I think this has been a big advance. It's also a lot safer because you know, when you do needle biopsies of the pancreas, 
you run the risk of developing pancreatic fistulas, you run the risk of hitting a big major blood vessel because they are pretty vascular, particularly in the head. Um, so this is a lot safer. So let's talk about kidney alone versus simultaneous kidney pancreas versus pancreas after kidney. Uh, and then we'll also talk about um, which type one and which type two. So this is from a paper uh, out of the University of Colorado. Alex Wiseman, who's a nephrologist there, uh, recently published um, this paper, which talks about the advantages and disadvantages of um, kidney pancreas versus pancreas alone and live donor versus uh, waiting for the simultaneous kidney pancreas. So you can see in a live donor, kidney alone minimizes waiting time spent on dialysis has very low early morbidity and mortality and better survival initially than with SPK. Uh, SPK, you get better glycemic control early on, obviously, um, and the median pancreas graft survival now is greater than 10 years. Um, a PAK, again, with a living donor, you know, you ultimately get long-term good glycemic control. Um, so, so he comes up with this algorithm. Um, so if you have a type 1 diabetic uh, and you could get them an SPK pre-dialysis, that's great, but most of them you can't. So you're better off getting the kidney alone pre-dialysis and then ultimately going on to get the PAK. Um, so again, um, if you could get them the SPK pre-dialysis, great, but once they're on dialysis, again, you're better off getting them a live donor kidney and then going on to the, to, to the PAK. Now, the impact that pancreas transplant has on renal allograft survival, it's the same sort of plot. You have a little bit higher incidence of perioperative events, which may result in loss of the kidney transplant, but when you get out to 143 days, that equalizes, and then it's all the survival advantage for the kidney transplant in terms of that improved glycemic control. Um, and and uh, this is a recent paper um, that's actually out uh, just last year that looked at the outcomes of, of um, pancreas transplant in type 1 versus type 2 diabetics. And although, again, the type 2 are very highly selected, uh, they tend to do pretty well with a pancreas transplant. Now, Obviously, we want, we'd like to see an effect on the secondary complications of diabetes with pancreatic transplantation. Um, and the potential benefit is to halt the progression of complications of diabetes. Um, unfortunately, most of these patients, by virtue of the fact that they already have end-stage renal disease, most of them have had diabetes for decades, and frequently their other secondary complications are quite advanced. So it's very tough to show a, significant, a statistically significant difference in terms of the impact of, 
of the pancreas transplants on their secondary complications because they're already advanced and whatever molecular mechanisms are at play are probably going down that path already. But there are studies that show that um, over the long term you will sometimes see improvement in autonomic neuropathy. You'll see improvement in terms of degree of uh, atherosclerosis. Um, but again, it is difficult to demonstrate, and the data is not that great. Uh, but what is clear is that there's significant uh, improvement in the quality of life, at least in terms of the uh, more positive perception of health, less pain from the neuropathies and, and gastric paresis and all that. They have a greater ability to function socially. And I think what's really telling is patients who get a transplant, pancreas transplant, which then fail, sometimes they have horrendous post-operative courses, they want another one. Um, it's very rare that people don't want another one. And as one patient once put it to me, he said, being a type 1 diabetic is like always waiting for the other shoe to fall. You're always worried about something. And in fact, the first woman uh, that we did a pancreas transplant here. She received a pancreas after a live donor kidney. She was 35 years old. She had been diabetic for 30 years. And we calculated, as an estimate, we asked her how many times she stuck herself a day, how many times she you know, injected insulin. And we figured out over those 30 years, she had stuck herself in excess of 76,000 times. So you know, she was very pleased to have to, to be able to stop doing that. Um, talk a little bit in the last few minutes about the demand. Um, the number of new registrations for pancreas transplant has trailed off a little bit. Again, it peaked in the mid of the last decade and has trailed off a little for all pancreas transplants, uh, but significantly for SPKs, also for the PAKs. Um, when you look at the number of transplants performed, it's also decreased. We showed that before. And when we look at the breakdown of where these transplants are being performed, UNOS breaks the country down into 11 regions. We're region 9, which is New York State and Vermont. And you can see we have the amongst the worst, lowest number of pancreas transplants. Uh, only, probably only area that's worse is New England. Uh, so in contiguous states, there's about 33 million people from New York to New England who are really underserved in terms of pancreas transplants. And you can see, again, the vast majority of these, even the large areas that do lots of pancreas transplants, relatively speaking, they do relatively few type 2 diabetics. That like by uh, say like per hundred patient years on the list. I mean, is that just poor list management or poor procurement or not aggressive listing? All of the above. <clears throat> um, and I'll show you this. And in fact, when we it took us actually three years to get UNOS approval. UNOS is the United Network for Organ Sharing. That's the organization that has the contract from the federal government to oversee transplant programs and to oversee the allocation and distribution of organs. So it took us three years of fighting with UNOS to be able to start doing pancreas transplants here 
despite the fact that, that New York and New England are underserved. But you can see, so we started our program, we got approval in 2008, and the numbers jumped just by the fact of our program, and we're a very modest program at this point. Um, when we look at other states, so again, <clears throat> the leading transplant, pancreas transplant programs have historically been in the Midwest, and when you look at transplants per million population, uh, Minnesota in 2004, which was their best year, did almost 24 pancreas transplants per million population. You look at us, we're down at 1.9, Connecticut's 1.1 per million population. So really underserved relative to other parts of the country. Um, when we look at the use of which donors they're using, and UNOS defines what's called a standard criteria donor, and for simplicity, it's donors less than 50. Um, but you can see that, that, again, in the Midwest, they're procuring a lot more pancreases than, than we are. We're New York Organ Donor Network, um, and we procure very few pancreas pancreases from the deceased donor pool that we have. Um, when you look at the number of American Society of Transplant Surgeons approved fellowships for training in pancreas transplantation, we're the UNOS Region 9, New York and Vermont, is the only, is the only uh, region in the country that doesn't have a single pancreas transplant training program that's approved by UNOS. And we're, we're not there yet. We have to... You have to have a program that does 20 pancreas transplants a year for at least two consecutive years to get approval as an approved program. So now, in the last couple of minutes, let's talk about our program. Well, when we were looking to start the program, we said, okay, how are our type 1 diabetics faring? So we decided we would break down uh, from 2004 to 2007, we did 847 kidney transplants of which 32% were diabetics, and of which 16% uh, of those, or 5.3% of the total, were type 1 diabetics. And then we said, okay, after transplant, so these are patients that are plugged into the medical system, they're getting seen quite frequently, and again, they're a select group of type 1 diabetics because, you know, they have renal failure because they never were able to control themselves properly. So how did they fare after transplant, even though they're really plugged into the system? And when we looked at their A1Cs, we found that only 15% of them had A1Cs under 7. And we had 17% that had A1Cs over 10. So for whatever reason, whether they're really more brittle, whether they're you know, really more non-compliant or whatever, you know, these patients don't do very well in terms of their glycemic control. So, now, so we got approval in 2008. Um, we did our first pancreas transplant on July 20th, 2008. We have a dedicated nurse coordinator, which is Gianna Camacho. Gianna, say hello. <laughs> um, we now have three surgeons. So when I got here, I was the only one who had ever done a, trans a pancreas transplant. 
So we have now three surgeons that are capable of doing pancreas transplants independently. Myself, Rodrigo Sandoval, who some of you may know, and Anthony Watkins. Anthony, say hello. <laughs> and we have now five full-time transplant nephrologists. Uh, John Crew, who's sitting here. Uh, David Cohn, many of you must know. Uh, Bekir Tanriover, who sees most of the new pancreas transplant evaluations, uh, Sumit Mohan and Jeff Doob. Uh, so, how have we fared? Well, so to date we've done 37 pancreas transplants here, 12 SPKs, 25 PAKs. We have about 74 patients on the waiting list. Again, 30 P SPKs, 44 waiting for PAKs. We have a mean follow-up of those 37 of 609 days. Our overall patient survival is 100%. Our overall pancreas transplant graft survival is 83%. We have 31 grafts still functioning. We've had five graft thromboses, or 13.5%. We had one graft loss at 479 days post-transplant due to Epstein-Barr virus pancreatitis. The overall kidney graft survival is better than 90, is about 95%. We had one patient who had received a PAK who lost their kidney due to interstitial fibrosis and tubular atrophy, what we used to call chronic rejection, uh, at uh, 1,800 days. And we had one to who uh, had progression of her iliac artery atherosclerotic disease, who lost a, uh, what had been an ABO-incompatible live donor kidney transplant at 1,700 days um, after the kidney transplant. This is our graft survival, so you can see uh, the Kaplan-Meier curve. Uh, other than the... the uh, the early graft losses due to thrombosis, I think we've done very well. And this, if there's one slide to look at, this is it. This is the one I'm most proud of and like the most. This is the A1Cs prior to transplant, one month after transplant, and then at last follow-up. And you can see not only is it within the normal range, but it's really tight in those 31 patients with functioning grafts. So, in summary, obviously diabetes is an increasing problem. Uh, the results of whole organ pancreas transplants are improving, and you have three options, the SPK, PAK, and PTA, or pancreas transplant alone. Um, the technical considerations considered continue to be substantial, uh, but enteric drainage is preferred. I didn't really talk about this at all, but... Um, Oral immunosuppression now is steroid-free. They basically get four days of steroids while they're in the hospital, and then they're off steroids long-term. New York has been grossly underserved, and we have a nascent but active program. We have a nascent but active program here in Columbia. So I'll end there. Uh, now that we're being thrown out anyway. Yeah. <laughs>